Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I want to thank you for being here, and I want us to stay in touch. So subscribe to this podcast, then go to writingtherongway.com and enter your best email to receive the Martian Embassy Missive, my bi-weekly newsletter where I let you know what's happening on Mars, where we're always making big plans. Join the Martians so you don't get left out of the invasion at writingtherongway.com. And as a special bonus, I'll send you a free book. Speaking of books, my new book is called The National Gallery, and it contains sonnets about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, elegies lamenting the death of my iPhone, and other strange missives from yours truly, the Poet Laureate of Hell. Visit thenationalgallery.ca to order your signed copy. That's thenationalgallery.ca. I'm talking to Robert J. Sawyer, who is uh, at sfwriter.com, and one of the uh, most celebrated science fiction writers in the world, really. Uh, member of the Order of Canada, uh, one of only eight writers to ever win all three of the world's top awards for Best Science Fiction Novel of the Year. Uh, that would be the Hugo, of course, the Nebula, and the John W. Campbell Memorial. Many other awards. Uh, Robert, I think probably it's fair to say uh, that you're one of the most celebrated Canadian writers there is, uh, never mind you know, being a science fiction writer, which is something I don't think a lot of people necessarily pay attention to maybe the way that they, sh- they should um, you know, just because of the, um, you know, the way that you, of course, you know, marketed as a science fiction writer, you know, which you are, but I, I do think there's kind of still a bit of that weird, um, dichotomy, which has always been kind of strange and meaningless, particularly in, in Canada, uh, between the so-called, you know, genre fiction and, and non-genre fiction. Uh, and that's something I, don't, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on, uh, but I think the Oppenheimer alternative is a, is a great novel kind of uh, to to look at kind of maybe through that lens a little bit, because in many respects, uh, what you're doing here is, you know, hard science fiction. In other respects, you're pulling in an astounding amount of historical research uh, in addition to the, the regular scientific research that you are known for. Uh, and I think it's particularly interesting being a Canadian author, because of course, Canada is a country that if you take a PhD in literature like I did, you know, you'll get hammered over the head again and again with the fact that the thing that Canadian literature, literary, quote unquote, literary fiction writers excel at is, you know, historiographic metafiction, this ridiculous term that refers to, you know, this uh, writing of uh, fiction that pulls in historical figures and so on. And then also reflects to some degree of on uh, the process of you know, writing history itself. And I think in some ways, uh, although it's you know, clearly, it's not necessarily you know, being positioned in this way, but I think in many respects your Oppenheimer alternative is kind of an interesting um, entry in that very you know, mainstream literary genre. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious to, to know your thoughts on kind of how you see this novel kind of relative to other science fiction or even other, you know, historical fiction. Well, you raise a number of points there, and I'll try to address them uh, in sequence. When people ask me to describe myself, I say these words in this order, Canadian science fiction writer. So number one, I'm a Canadian. Number two, my field is science fiction. But I'm a fan, I'm a reader, I'm a collector of uh, memorabilia of science fiction, Last of those words is writer, not the first word defining me. It's the last word defining me. And, you know, I, as you've mentioned, I've won a lot of awards and had some attention paid to my work. Uh, like Willie Loman near the end of, you know, attention must be paid, people finally said. And uh, I was solicited by various institutions for my papers as an archival donation, including University of California Riverside, which has one of the great science fiction research collections. Uh, University of South Florida, uh, as I said, USF, it sounds perfect for my papers, right, who wanted me for their science fiction holdings. The Merrill Collection, the Toronto Public Library's special science fiction library. And then McMaster came along and they said, we want you for our Canadian literature holdings. And I gave my papers to them. Because ultimately, when I had to think about what do I want my legacy to be, I wanted to be as a Canadian writer. 
more than I want it to be as a science fiction writer. And so I, uh, of course, I don't have a PhD in, in literature uh, as you do, but I, I, I took English literature courses at university, including one in Canadian literature. Dr. Margaret Morris was my professor at Ryerson in that field. Uh, I remember very, very fondly the course and, you know, doing Mary Kay, Mary Claire Blay and uh, Martha Stenso and um, uh, Rock Carrier and, you know, the, the, the classics of Canadian literature. And, of course, Margaret Lawrence, Margaret Atwood, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so I do understand what I'm doing with the Oppenheimer alternative, even though if you search, if you do a textual search in the body of the text, not the, about the author, you'll find the word Canada once, and there's also the word Montreal once. And that's it for Canadian content in the book, because it's set in Los Alamos and in Princeton in the United States, dealing with emigre scientists from all over the world or native-born American scientists, such as Oppenheimer, born in New York City. Um, but it didn't have a direct Canadian angle. And yet, when I was studying Canlit, uh, and uh, uh, it's hard to tell whether your gray hair trumps my no hair, but I think I'm older than you. So when I was studying Canlit, it was when Margaret Atwood's survival was the big defining text the, and, and monumental in as much as somebody came along and said, no, 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 there's cohesion here. This isn't just a, a random uh, um, scattershot uh, series of one-offs. There are themes and cohesion to this thing that we can now call Canadian literature. And survival was her title and her defining theme. And for a guy who grew up in the 1960s, against the backdrop of the Cold War and the fear of nuclear annihilation. There was no, you know, yes, we live in a harsh environment in the North, blah, blah, blah. If you don't, you know, uh, band together and fight the elements and often the antagonist, as in, say, Martha Stenso's Wild Geese is the elements, not any particular person. No, no, no. The quintessential survival story is could we survive nuclear childhood, the discovery of the nuclear fission chain reaction that can get into a runaway, out-of-control um, criticality, which Leo Ziller discovered, and uh, the weapons that he saw immediately were possible from that, that despite no Canadian characters of substance in the book, that it's a quintessentially Canadian novel, metafictionally using real historical personages to explore the quintessential Atwoodian notion of survival as the core defining conceit of Canadian literature. Now, so you're tackling a bunch of things. So one thing I just want to quickly dive into, just briefly, because you mentioned is, so So my age is 40. I turned 40. But I oh, am I'm old just enough. You. I just turned 60. Well, I am old enough, though, to remember... Uh, doing drills when I was a kid, uh, nuclear drills. What if there's a nuclear war? Well, we're going to hide under our desks, you know, <laughs> and there's a real drill, you know, a real thing that we really did. And I it is a real, um, so I, I, I as well, though, you know, display, I was born in 79, but as well, I kind of, you know, very much, you know, remember that sort of paranoia, which is in some ways given way to an, a different, type of paranoia um, or different types but uh, the other thing you bring up briefly which I think is interesting which is Atwood um, so I was a number of years ago reviewing Atwood's writings on science fiction what she calls science fiction yes. um, and uh, in that review I mentioned you know Atwood's of course uh, you know, from a long line of scientific pessimists uh, she's very pessimistic about you know, human relationships and very pessimistic about uh, scientific. Uh, uh, and there's a whole you know tradition of that, of course, in science fiction itself. Uh, I'm not to denigrate her for that or anything, but I did point out in the review that you know you, as an example of somebody who takes a much more optimistic approach, typically uh, to you know these sorts of questions of scientific uh, endeavor. Uh, so. 
And then you bring up the kind of Canlit, uh, your sort of CanCon. I think one of the things that also makes this novel unusual for you in some respects is that it, it has such a lack of the typical Canadian um, referencing, which you, which you almost always you know, steep your work in. I revel with absolutely, and yeah. and, and we're, was doing so at. A, I mean, I remember years years ago meeting you uh, in Calgary at some you know fancy dinner that they were doing for some reason. I was invited to, um, but uh, but at it, I remember getting into some discussion with you about like why is it that uh, you know people have this belief in Canada uh, that I don't know if it still persists, but it certainly was persisting then. That you know you can't reference Canadian pop culture in a novel without and have it sell in the U.S. Like it's such an absurd proposition. I had just talked to a friend before meeting you at the dinner. I had talked to a friend of mine who had ha- who had been pressured to remove all references from Canada from her book set in Calgary, um, uh, and yet you had just, of course, you know, been publishing in this manner without any hassles, really. Uh, with zero hassles, uh, which is the the object lesson here. And the classic example, you know, is uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which is a Canadian play about a Canadian Greek family uh, in uh, Winnipeg, I think, uh, that had to be be rewritten to be set in the United States to have any kind of marketability beyond just fringe festivals, right? And so... I'm a smart ass. I've always been a smart ass. And I've always been um, a science believer, which is that you test propositions. So in terms of, we'll take the second one first, in terms of testing propositions, people kept telling me when I was starting out, don't set your work in Canada or it will not sell internationally. And back in the day, there was a guy named Crad Kolodny, you may have encountered the name, who was the famous street poet in Toronto. He was out at usually roundabout where the Brass Rail strip joint is now, on the street corner, hawking his wares. And um, I wanted people to show me the indigent Canadian author who had foolishly written a novel set in Canada and was out begging with his tin cup because what a monumentally stupid mistake to make. And nobody could point to the evidence. It is, as in so many things, the received wisdom. It's so oft repeated that it's taken as gospel without anybody ever testing the proposition. So I was smart-ass enough to say, well, I'm going to test the proposition. But I also was smart-ass enough to say when... um, when somebody said, you can't set your work in Canada, to say, sure I can, but I can also change it. I came along at the right time. My first novel was written on a computer. And if somebody said, change Toronto to Chicago, two great cities on the great shores of Great Lakes, very similar climates and people, population, demographics, I could do it in an hour instead of in a month because of search and replace. So I was poised at the right time to conduct the experiment technologically that my predecessors had been too chicken to conduct because the consequences of being wrong when you have to type a manuscript were gigantic versus the consequences of being wrong in my circumstance were minuscule. So I decided, what the heck? The worst thing that's going to happen is somebody, and of course, science fiction publishing. Now we have some publishing houses in Canada that do science fiction, some of great repute. I currently, the Oppenheimer Alternative, is with Red Deer Press, a prestigious imprint of Fitzhenry and Whiteside, a prestigious publisher in, in, in Canada. But um, at the time, you had to go to the States. And I was prepared for that pushback that everybody had warned me about. It never came. I'm now 30 years a novelist, and in 30 years, no American literary agent, book editor, publisher, bookseller, reader, or reviewer has ever said a negative word about the Canadian content in my books. But to this day, I do get a lot of praise from Canadians, but to this day, there are Canadians who will say, oh, 
All that Canadian stuff. I don't know why you did that. You're limiting your market. I'm in 20-odd languages worldwide. I won an award for being the most popular science fiction writer in China. I'm a three-time winner of Spain's top science fiction award, which sets a record. I'm a three-time winner of Japan's top science fiction award for foreign novel. That's a record, too. There was no pushback, not just from the United States, but no pushback anywhere in the world. And... I blazed the trail, and some others were there too. Charles DeLint, Guy Gabriel Kay, Tanya Huff, although all in fantasy. I was the trailblazer in science fiction, maybe along with Terence M. Green of Toronto. Um, we blazed a trail, and now the writers who are writing now, not only our domestic ones, great writers like, say, Kelly Robson, uh, recent uh, fated with the Campbell Awards and other major awards, um, but writers who don't even live in Canada, like um, um, uh, Daryl, what the heck is my friend Daryl's last name, uh, who wrote a novel, he's an American, and he wrote a novel set in Canada. What the hell? It's a perfectly valid, as valid as writing a novel set in Tibet is for an American author, or set in, uh, as James Clavell made his fame, setting novels in feudal China as an American author. It's such an, well, it is... Publishing is very much a racket that traffics in these received wisdoms. So, but before we come back, kind of around to that and how you've you know published this book and maybe against some of the received wisdoms, um, I want to just talk about the book itself a bit more. Uh, so, can you talk a bit about this blend, just what the Hoppenheimer alternative is about, and this kind of way that you've been blending fiction and nonfiction into it? Because for about seventeen yes. chapters or so, it's very much, you know, a well-steeped, in fact, historical fiction, uh, for the most part. That's right, 17 out of 51 chapters, that's right. Um, so, before that, I'm going to take a step back. I'm an old man. It's Daryl Gregory. It's just a brain <laughs> fart. I love Daryl. He's a great writer. I've blurbed his books. Wonderful friend. It just happens as you get to my age. Daryl Gregory, very fine writer. No Canadian heritage at all. And he set a wonderful novel called After Party in Toronto. So anyways, um, so I set out, I'm very, I've always been interested in alternate history. A large part of why I'm a science fiction writer today, or a good science fiction writer, I might very well have been a crappy one. A large part of why I'm a good one has to do with CBC Radio's Ideas series. When I was 25 years old, just out of Ryerson uh, with a degree in broadcasting for mm, two, three years at that point, they gave me money to go to New York City to interview science fiction writers so that I could produce not one, not two, but three hours of radio documentary about the history of science fiction for their acclaimed ideas documentary series. And I got to sit down with Frederick Pohl and Isaac Asimov and Thomas M. Dish and here in Toronto with Judith Merrill and with Spider Robinson and and uh, the editors at the time of Asimov's, which was Sheila, uh, which was Shano uh, McCarthy, and with Analog, which was Stanley Schmidt and Gardner Dozois, who had left uh, Analog but was then editing or was still already doing his year's best and whatever, all the greats, and it was like a masterclass handed to me, and I was paid to get it, and that was a success. And so they said, what else you got? And I said, in 89, I'm 29, what about this thing that's called alternative or alternate history, counterfactuals? What if the South had won the American Civil War? What if uh, Canada had been uh, uniformly French instead of uh, uh, mostly English? Blah, blah, blah. All these thought experiments. I did that. But I'd never written an alternate history. And when it came time to finally look for things to do in my writing career that I had not already done, because at this point, in terms of economics and laurels, I point to my awards case off camera here, I don't have to do anything. My, my obituary is written. The Globe's already got it on file. I know what it'll say when I die. Anything I do at this point is just stuff that is farther down the inverted pyramid of journalism. They can cut it off at any point. I'd never done an alternate history. When I came time to do it, I thought, you know what? I know Philip K. Dick, the great science fiction writer, argued in The Man in the High Castle, talk about metafiction, 
argue has characters arguing in that novel about whether or not alternate history is a subgenre of science fiction. And they conclude that it is. And I don't think it is. Because I think science fiction is the literature of things that plausibly might happen. And we've passed the point of no return for these uh, tipping points in the past. So I decided what I wanted to do was not an alternate history, but a secret history. What's the difference? An alternate history postulates there's a point in the past where two timelines diverge. There's the one we live in, and the reader is ensconced in, and there's another one that says, starting at this point, time unfolded differently. From this little cause, all these grand effects rippled forward. And I said, no, 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 no. I want to do something because the, op the, the um, Manhattan Project was the most secret project in government history. When Harry S. Truman became president of the United States after having been uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's vice president, he had to be briefed about the Manhattan Project because as vice president, his security clearing wasn't high enough to know about the Manhattan Project. $2 billion of black money, by which I mean untraceable money, not approved by Congress, not approved by any oversight committee, was spent on the Manhattan Project out of the U.S. Treasury. Uh, Manhattan uh, um, Project, I should say, I did say Manhattan Project, being 60 and doing three interviews in a day, um, with almost nobody knowing what was going on. And even to this day, there are still new documents being released under Freedom of Information Acts, but some is still classified. And there were fascinating lacunae, holes, in the published reports about the Manhattan Project that I thought, you know, some of these are big enough to drive a whole science fiction plot through without disrupting, without invalidating, without contradicting anything we already know. And that's what the Oppenheimer alternative is. And when I set out to look for that plot, I, of course, looked at Oppenheimer, and we think of him as one of the world's great atomic physicists. He was actually an astrophysicist. His principal work, what he thought prior to the war was going to win him his Nobel Prize, uh, was his work on the discovery of black holes. He was the first to postulate in an Einsteinian relativistic framework the inevitability of the existence of black holes. And uh, it's only by happenstance of war, as many industries and individuals were repurposed for other things, automobile plants started making aircraft parts for you know fighter dogfight planes. Everybody was repurposed. He was repurposed. But it wasn't his first love by any means. And so I looked for a story that had an astrophysical component that I could draw upon that would make sense to be Oppie's secret history, because make no mistake, he said and others said over and over again that there was something going on that the public doesn't know about. Oppie himself said to a journalist during his security clearance hearing in 1953, if a reporter, meaning you right there, you, reporter, were to dig hard enough, get with it, brother, were to dig hard enough, you would discover that this story is much bigger than just my security suspension. Unfortunately, no reporter ever did that. In my novel, we find out what that huge science fictional story is. Now, one of the aspects that is really interesting to me as a writer uh, in terms of how you're integrating all this historical research is how you've handled writing uh, and dealing with the dialogue. Because uh, I you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that a majority of the dialogue, including much of the dialogue uh, past the sort of point where, you know, things kind of enter the secret history, is in fact, you know, based on documented uh, dialogue. From various degrees. So some of it is verbatim because some we actually have either still extant the actual magnetic tape recordings or at least the transcripts that were made of them contemporaneously when they were made. Uh, when the recordings were done. Oppenheimer was considered a security risk because his wife was a member of the Communist Party. His brother was a member of the Communist Party. He had all kind, as he said, you'll find I've supported every left-wing left 
leaning cause on the West Coast, where he lived, Berkeley, California. He always claimed he wasn't personally a communist, but he certainly had associations that were troublesome to the security establishment of the United States. So in the ideal circumstances, I had the verbatim transcript. When Oppenheimer is speaking to uh, um, the security people at the University of California at Berkeley, and he's saying, you know, so keep an eye out for this guy, George Eltonton, because he's been sniffing around to see if any espionage could happen, if any secrets could be carefully given over to the Soviets, just they're our allies, just to make sure they're in the loop. That's verbatim, because those things were recorded and transcribed, and ultimately, Freedom of Information Acts and other researchers insisting that we're now 75 years after the end of the war, that they may be made public. Others, we have autobiographical accounts. So a fair bit of the way Edward Teller talked, he was never considered a security risk, um, even though, unlike Oppie, he was a foreign national originally. He was Hungarian. Oppie was an American citizen born and raised. But Teller was never, and Teller was a Jew. Oppie was too, but there was great anti-Semitism at that time. Nonetheless, Teller was never under surveillance. But we have Teller's autobiography, and because he was such a flamboyant and um, irascible character, everybody he touched wrote about him in their autobiographies. So there are multiple accounts, often conflicting, and there's where the novelist has his or her latitude. When one guy says, oh yeah, Teller came in and he was the soul of cooperation, and another guy comes in and says, Teller came in and as, as usual, he was an obstructionist, and when Teller says, those fools didn't even know what I was talking about, I went right over their heads, you have to make a choice, and I get to make that choice. But yes, there's an authenticity, not only just to the words, but unfortunate in a way that many historical novelists aren't. These are guys who lived in the era of sound recording, of film, and even after the war, of television. So there are interviews. Edward R. Murrow famously interviewed uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer at length. And ironically, the same actor, David Strathairn, is famous for playing Edward R. Murrow in Good Night and Good Luck, for which he won an Oscar, and being the best on film Oppenheimer in a different uh, production of very fine Emmy Award-winning miniseries called Day One. Same actor playing both parts, but in different productions. Um, he, you get to hear the lilt, the lilt of the voice, the incredible softness of the way Oppenheimer spoke. He was not bellicose or belligerent. When he said, now I'm become death, the destroyer of worlds, it was a soul that was crushed saying it. Whereas another guy triumphantly in a Bain Books military SF novel, going, yes, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I had the luxury of knowing how he said it. My friend Adel Van Belkom had one of his great short story scenes, Torpedo, and he wanted to write an alternate history about the October crisis here in Canada for um, Aerodreams, an anthology of Canadian alternate histories. And I had lived through it, but Adel's younger than me. I remember it. Even at 10 years old, I was when it happened. I remember it. And, uh, of course, Trudeau was famously asked, how far will you go? And he goes, oh, just watch me, just watch me. And Edo had written it based on printed reports where Trudeau, with his steely-eyed gaze, every word and explosion from his mouth, just watch me, which turned out to just not be reality. My, Trudeau is my very distant cousin. I remember distinctly <laughs> a, a family reunion on the Trudeau side where it was like this massive hall with nobody in the middle. <laughs> and these two caps, whether people have refused or, you know, love to acknowledge their connection to Trudeau. <laughs> Interesting. So now, I love Trudeau. My brother hates Trudeau. I have two brothers, one's dead, <laughs> one's alive. My, my, my living brother uh, just can't stand Trudeau. And we had essentially the same upbringing by essentially the same liberal academic university professor Canadian parents. But there's no doubt that Pierre Elliott Trudeau was a polarizing figure. He was not a criminal, in that, but like Nixon is not a polarizing figure, <laughs> right? Everybody 
The Republicans are embarrassed by him and the Democrats rightly revile him. But Trudeau was an incredible part of Canadian history. And what he did was put panache and urgency into Canadian politics, and it had never had either of those things previously. Just to return to the dialogue for a second, so in what ways was it important for you to have so much of that historical accuracy? And what are some of the just craft ways you focused on dealing with the fact that you wanted to have this accuracy, which I imagine caused a number of sort of uh, challenges when you were writing? Yes. So right now, the United States is locked in a pre-election battle. We know who the two opponents are going to be. We can, I, you can lay any amount of dollars on this safe bet. The next president of the United States will be either Donald Trump or Joe Biden. There are third-party candidates. There are other people who will be listed on the ballot. There are other possibilities in a broad theoretical sense, just like Maxwell will tell you in a room filled with oxygen, you can still starve to death because there's a statistical chance that all the oxygen molecules will go to the far side of the room, not starve to death, but suffocate to death, asphyxiate. Ain't gonna happen. There are only two possible outcomes that have any chance of happening. I consider science fiction's moral authority to talk about ethical issues and policy issues to be firmly rooted in the plausibility of science fiction. As soon as there's a showstopper where I say, well, you know, there's a third party guy. I think he's got a real shot at the White House. You tune me out. No matter how valid my points are, or how valid that person's platform might be, it's fantasy. It has no possibility of being real. Why even waste my processing cycles on it? So, so whenever I do hard SF, contemporary science fiction, or something historical, I don't want at any moment for me to lose my credibility as a commentator on the things that I really want to talk about, which in the, in the Oppenheimer alternative are the need to reckon with the unconscionable decision by the United States government to drop atomic bombs, not one but two, on civilian populations, even though Japan had been making back-channel overtures to surrender for over a year prior to that be done, being done. The unconscionable, uh, unconscionable decision to drop a second bomb 72 hours after the first solely because there was a bad weather forecast for the coming week. And if they didn't do it in 72 hours, they might have to wait 10 days to do it. And in 10 days, everybody knew Japan was going to surrender. They'd just been bombed. But in 72 hours, word was still reaching Tokyo and the emperor. Telegraph lines are down. Telephone lines are down. Uh, there is no television. There's no internet. Newspapers are still trying to publish the story and get the facts. People are on foot trying to get between cities because roads have been bombed out of existence. It was unconscionable. We have to reckon with that. And as the metaphor through my novel of the scientists looking for redemption, the, the American scientists working for the American government and the Canadian government and the British government, the only three of the allied powers who knew about the atomic bomb during its development were Canada, the United States, and Great Britain. Great Britain started the project with their tube alloys effort. The United States subsumed the project, and Canada provided its best and brightest minds at the Montreal Laboratory or at Los Alamos or... Um, Oak Ridges that came down, and of course we provided the uranium. We were the country that had that. There's a reckoning. There's a an account that has to be made, a realization that the propaganda the United States has fed itself for three quarters of a century now that this was a necessity, that it saved not just Japanese lives, but American lives by shortening the war, or whichever way you want to invert that, saved American lives, and even Japanese lives, is absolute utter crap. It was post-war supremacy. 
for the United States, the world's one and only, and if Truman had had his way, if his delusional belief that the Soviets simply couldn't possibly have the brains or uh, to make nuclear weapons on their own, let alone the espionage capabilities to steal them, that the United States would be Team America, world police, as the puppet movie from a few years ago had it, dictating to the rest of the world how things would be. I don't have the moral authority to say that in a novel if you get to chapter four and say, this doesn't ring true. So it has to ring true or the exercise is derailed. And how did you approach, just on a simple craft level, dealing with, uh, you know, trying to build a scene and trying to develop, you know, that dramatic uh, structuring while having, you know, at your, dis- I mean, obviously you, you know, we're going to invent some dialogue and so on, but you really wanted to, as much as possible, focus, use, utilize the dialogue in hand or some version of, uh, you know, these three versions you might have in hand or whatever. Uh, what were some of the just things you were doing as a writer in the kind of craft process, you know, in your days, you know, just tr- to try to make that work? So on a broad basis, I say of science fiction, science fiction's job is not necessarily to give the most likely interpretation of scientific phenomenon, but rather to give the most entertaining interpretation that can't be easily gainsaid by what we already know. I have to be entertaining. I'm not didactic. I'm not writing a textbook. There are great nonfiction books about Yes, Richard Rhodes is a friend of mine. He wrote uh, The Making of the Atomic Bomb. It is endlessly entertaining as well as fabulously informative. But my job, first and foremost, is to keep you turning the pages. And I'm developing an argument over, in the case of Oppenheimer Alternative, 300-plus pages, bit by bit, that you're picking up piece by piece that you wouldn't have sat still for if I'd done it as simply 5,000 words of argument. But as you pick it up along, as you go along. So when I have choices to make, number one is to make sure that the choice propels the reader forward to the place I want to get them to do, too. And for me, it isn't to the resolution of a plot, although that's part of what I owe them for their lunch money that they've given me for the book, but is to... uh, them thinking about an issue that they either have never thought about before or that they rethinking an issue that they made up their minds about ages and ages ago. From a craft point of view, sometimes the best way to do it is to change characters. So although it's called the Oppenheimer alternative, there are scenes from Leo Zillard's point of view because he let me tell that part of the story better. Or uh, von von Braun's point of view, the Nazi rocketeer. Uh, and Edward Teller's point of view. Uh, You have, at any given day, when all of them were alive, during from 1936 when my novel starts to 67 when it ends, not all of them made it to 67. 67 is the year Oppenheimer died in real life. Um, But on any given day, they're all alive, and you choose which one is going to let you tell your story in the most engaging forward propelling way and that really requires a lot of thought i often will say when i do critique manuscripts or teach writing you've got the right plot you got the wrong person telling it. in fact i was in a discussion just yesterday about um moby dick right moby dick is the story of ahab but it's not told by ahab herman melville knew that telling a story from the point of view of a monomaniac would be an unpleasant viewing experience or reading experience. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle knew telling his mystery stories from the point of view of a super genius who was dismissively arrogant of everything around him would not work. He chose, in the case of Melville, Ishmael. In the case of Doyle, Dr. Watson. Uh, in the case of um, Citizen Kane, for that matter, it's the reporter Thompson who is trying to figure out what Kane's last words meant, not Citizen Kane, who is the viewpoint character that propels the narrative. So it's a it's a lesson that writers often they think, well, the story is about Ahab, so therefore it's told from Ahab's point of view. No, 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 no. It's very often 
goes right back to the, the biblical scholars do that. The Ten Commandments is about God telling mankind how to behave, but it's told as Moses' story, not as God's story. Can we move back into this publishing discussion a little bit and uh, maybe just start with how you're publishing the Oppenheimer Alternative? Uh, if you could just maybe briefly explain how you're doing that uh, initially. And I'm going to be perfectly candid and say not the way I wanted to be doing it. I wrote this novel, and um, my penultimate novel, Quantum Night, uh, was being written when my younger brother was diagnosed with lung cancer. He had nine months, and then he died. And for the first time in my writing career, um, I had to say to my publishers, I'm not going to meet my deadline. I can't, emotionally, I just can't. And they said, that's fine. You always meet your deadline. You're a joy to work with. You, We'd send you page proofs. They're back on time. We, we ask you a question. You answer that day. Yep, take what you need. You're not, you know, we know you're not joshing us or being a gold bricker. Go ahead. I found I liked writing a book without a deadline. And I was doing that just fine with the Oppenheimer alternative. And then it occurred to me, I'm missing one of my own lessons to other writers, which is, if you want your book to get attention, it has to tie into a real-world event. Uh, it has to be about a real-world issue. John Grisham became the world's best-selling crime fiction writer, not because of his great plotting or characters, although he does both, as do many of his colleagues, but because he would take a hot-button issue like capital punishment in the chamber or like the culpability of tobacco companies for the death of people who couldn't quit smoking after they'd been lured into it by tobacco advertising, as he did in The Runaway Jury. He found hot-button things to tie it into. If you don't have a hot-button thing, then you tie it into an anniversary. Say, Stephen Baxter. He wrote many fine novels, but the one that got the most attention of everything he wrote, my friend Stephen, science fiction writing colleague, was The Time Ships. Why? Because it came out in 1995 on the 100th anniversary of the publication of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Steve knew that every, certainly in the UK where he lives, every media outlet would be doing something on the centenary of The Time Machine. And if he had a new book about The Time Machine, a sequel, uh, he would be the guy they would interview. And of course, his book became a big bestseller. And it came to me, oh, my God, the 75th anniversary is coming up really fast of the birth of the atomic age. I hadn't really been conscious. My novel starts in 1936. I hadn't thought that the signal year is 1945 and the 75th would be 2020. Well, that only hit me in late 2018. And I hadn't finished the novel. And traditional publishers these days take at least a year from their A-list authors before a novel is in print, uh, because novels are not normally considered time sensitive and nobody wants to rush and work too hard. Even for some A-list authors, my friend Robert Charles Wilson turned in his latest novel to tour two years ago, The Cure, and it's not yet scheduled for publication, which means it's at least another year down the road. So when I said to my agent, uh, I got a bit of a challenge for us here. We're about 20 months, 18 months away from the 75th anniversary of Trinity or the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Can you? And I haven't finished the book. Let's see if we can sell this thing that I was writing at my own leisurely pace from a manuscript. Partial. And we sent it out and we had enormously positive interest from Tor, my, uh, pre, one of my previous publishers, from... Hot, uh, uh, John Joseph Adams books at uh, Houghton Mifflin uh, from 47 North, which is Amazon's own commercial publishing venture and other places. But one after the other said, we're booked through 2020. We can't bring this book out for your anniversary. And I have to own that. That's my fault. I didn't. And I, once I realized that there was an anniversary to hang this book on, I became as my agent will tell you, obsessive about meeting that date. So we had to look for smaller publishers who could be nimble. And I was approached by one in the United States who had recently brought out the new 
quote-unquote Robert Heinlein novel, The Pursuit of the Pankara, an alternate, long-forgotten version of The Number of the Beast, the first version that Heinlein wrote before he rewrote everything but the first quarter or third from scratch. Completely different book for the second two-thirds of the book. They approached me and said, we've got bookstore distribution, we're going in strong, we've got the first Heinlein new title since Grumbles from the Grave just after he died, you want to be our second title. Well, small publisher, not much money, but sure, that was perfect. And I came to Canada where I'd done my short story collections with Fitzhenry and Whiteside and indeed had been their science fiction editor a decade and a half ago and said, would you like to do an original novelist? Oh, yeah. So I ended up with two small presses, but I said, well, I'm kind of used to a big advance. And they said, we're kind of used to not paying them. So I said, okay, here's the deal. You can have the print rights for Canada or the United States, one in Canada, one in the US, nowhere else in the world. You can't have ebook rights. Those are mine. Why? Because as Krusty the Clown says about t-shirts, they're the sweetest blob. Because there's more money in ebooks per copy for the author than there is in hardcover books, let alone paperbacks. On a $35 hardcover, the author gets $350. On a uh, $7 ebook, $6.99 ebook, the author gets $490, right? 70% what the person paid if the author controls the ebook rates. So I said, okay, you do what you do well, which is really attractive print editions for your domestic market. I will exploit print everywhere else in the world, all the other countries of the world except Canada and the United States. I will exploit ebook even in Canada and the United States and everywhere else in the world on my own and audiobook on my own everywhere else in the world too. And no big publisher would have agreed to that. They all insisted for almost 20 years now on ebook rights. And for the last three, four, five years, they've insisted on audiobook rights too. And I got a deal in the end that I think will make me more money than had I agreed to let Tor or another big house do the book. Um, but it was not by my brilliant design, it was what I ended up with. And given that I was going to be published by small press and that I'm a big enough name that I have some clout, I said, okay, but we're going to wheel and deal. Don't even show me your boilerplate. This is what the terms are going to be. And they agreed. And do you mind if I ask you a couple just quick uh, yeah. technical questions about like or business questions about this? So now, do you also own the audiobook rights then as well at this point? Yes. And I was just about to sign a deal with a company, Malamute Media, that wanted to do them to do the book. I didn't want to narrate it myself. I have a nice voice, except today where it's hoarse from having done too many interviews. And I'm a trained broadcaster. I have a degree in radio and television arts from Ryerson. I could technically do it, but a good guy in studio gets a two to one ratio of recorded time to usable produced time in recording an audiobook. Oppenheimer Alternative is about 11 or 12 hours of audiobook meaning that it would be, for a professional narrator, 24 hours of studio time. But for me, it'd be 44 hours, an entire week's worth of work, of hard work. And my voice can't do an eight-hour day recording session. I could do maybe 60 minutes a day before my voice would start to give out. So I had a company that said, we'll give you the lion's share of the money. We want a little bit for ourselves and a little bit for our narrator. Will you do it? And I was all set to just about to sign the paperwork. And then my literary agent said, oh, we've been, you know, uh, recorded books, which did your The Terminal Experiment. We got an arrangement going back 25 years with them have said, we kind of like the new Rob Sawyer novel. Well, you've got a partnership that's that long. So they paid a substantial advance against royalties. And they are produced with a very fine narrator named Josh Bloomberg, um, the book. And indeed, Josh has done a better job than I could possibly have done simply because the reason they hired him is he's an accent specialist and a foreign language specialist. So when Oppenheimer drops a little French or German or Dutch, as he does in the novel, or Latin or Sanskrit, as he does in the novel, Josh can do it flawlessly and I can't. Or when Teller recites a Hungarian proverb in Hungarian. 
Josh can do it. So, so still, nonetheless, I'm making lots of money off the audiobook, but I am splitting that revenue pop with a narrator and a production company. Is that audiobook also out right now? I didn't notice. You, you hit the sore spot. Salt in the wound. <laughs> Recorded books came as a very late offer. And I said, I'd love to, but you guys should have been on the phone months ago. There's no way you can get this out by June 2nd, the release date for the printed book at this point. For the printed book and the ebook. And I want everything to drop together. It's especially important if you have ebook rights. For the audio to drop the same day on Audible, because Audible and and Kindle are both owned by Amazon, and they have this whisper sync feature where you can start reading on your Kindle and pick up listening on audio, and then go back to Kindle, back to Audible, blah 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 blah. And if you and a lot of people won't buy the Kindle book if it doesn't have the whisper sync feature. And recorded books swore up and down, up and down, up and down. June second, no problem, no problem. And they dropped the ball. They missed it. In theory, you and I are talking Monday, the 15th of June, and it's 3.58 p.m. In theory, it drops in eight hours and two minutes on Audible. At midnight on the 16th of June, it becomes available. In theory. In practice, I'm already composing in the angry <laughs> Because once burned, you know, you know, until you see it, you're not you're not trusting. Well, we'll see when this uh, comes out for sure. Um, yeah. Did you, did you also set? Sorry, just to go back to the, the rice question. Sure. Did you also separate out the uh, paperback and hardcover rights, uh, or did you so sell them both? I uh, talked to both publishers in Canada and the U.S. about whether we wanted to do a hardcover, and both of them. Felt in Canada, as you well know, a great deal of literary fiction is done in trade paperback original. Miriam Taves is an example, but many, 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 many. If you look at the uh, Canada Reads books, most of them are trade paperback, large format paperback originals. Uh, and I've been long listed, but never shortlisted for Canada Reads. And um, in this economic climate, there was a feeling that maybe uh, a hardcover. Would you know? Because usually you don't read them out simultaneously. There's a year gap. That we would have a hardcover out in 2020 and sell several thousand copies, but we would miss the 75th anniversary for the edition that would sell the bulk of copies in 2021 in the paperback. So it's a mutual decision between me, my Canadian publisher, my American publisher. We decided not to do a hardcover. The one plus of that is for the first time in a quarter of a century, I'm eligible to be uh, considered for the Philip K. Dick Award, one of the very few science fiction awards I've never won because it is exclusively in honor of works of science fiction, not fantasy, just science fiction, first published in the United States in paperback because all of Dick's novels were first published in that format. And so, uh, indeed, the administrator, I didn't even have to ask, the administrator of the awards, Gordon Van Gelder, reached out and said, please make sure our judges get this book. We're, we've seen that it's a paperback original. God knows if I'll win or even place, but we're, you know, you're handed lemons, you make lemonade. You make the best out of the fact that you're not going to have a hardcover. Um did you end up maintaining the hardcover rights, or did oh, I do have them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can we can do. I retained the rights to do hardcovers up to a threshold number of copies, um, so that the hardcover, if I do a hardcover run, will not cannibalize the library sales, which are an important market for the paperback publishers. The libraries would prefer a hardcover, but the you know Fitzhenry and Whiteside has to sell hundreds of library copies. For the book, for any Canadian literature title to be viable, now this, and I can't take that away from them. I have to give them that. Now this seems like a, this publishing uh, process you're doing, although you're kind of you know fell into it more than maybe designed uh, your way into it. It does seem like you're kind of now treating it like a bit of an experiment, and I know the experiment is in progress. Uh, but do you have any sense of how you might change what you're doing going forward? I have been extraordinarily pleased with how successful this experiment has been. Uh, we were afraid that I would get 
very little media attention. Not just because, by the way, of small presses, but because COVID-19 meant that my physical book tour got canceled. And nonetheless, I've done CTV interviews in Winnipeg and Saskatoon with more to come. Uh, the press attention across Canada, we had more than two dozen major Canadian daily newspapers led by the Calgary Herald, but all the papers in the post chain uh, do three quarters of a page on the Oppenheimer alternative the weekend it came out. Um, it's worked fabulously well to the point that if I do write another book, and that's not for sure, if I do write another book, this is the model I'm going to use again. In fact, I may even dispense with the traditional print publishers because ultimately uh, you can do print-on-demand distribution through Amazon, and their POD editions are every bit as attractive as, commercial, as traditionally web-offset editions these days. wasn't always the case. No. It used to look like photocopy or toner, but now it looks indistinguishable. Um, and that's how I am servicing every market except Canada and the United States. You want the Oppenheimer alternative in Australia or the UK or countries like India, where there are way more English speakers than there are in the United States, but it's still a minority language. You go to Amazon India and they will ship you next two days because it's print on demand. The Oppenheimer alternative from my typesetting master file, uh, POD made domestically in India for you at a decent price for you in India and a decent royalty for me in Canada because it doesn't have to be physically shipped. Normally, if you sell rights to a British or an American publisher, Canada is usually accounted as a throw into one or the other at about 80% royalty value of a U.S. sale. Buy my book in Buffalo, I get X. You buy it in Toronto, I get eight-tenths of X, which galled me. And a sale anywhere else in the world like Australia, New Zealand, China, Japan, anywhere like that, would be, if you were lucky, 50% of a normal royalty, an export royalty. And uh, I've avoided, on, on almost every copy I sell of this book, I think on every copy I sell of this book, ebook, audiobook, or print edition, anywhere in the world, I get a full domestic royalty. Now, do you think that this sort of approach is better or worse for an author who maybe doesn't have the backlist that you do and the existing, um, you know, profile that you do? I know it's a hard question to answer, but I'm wondering if you were starting again, if this is your first book, would you um, take this approach, do you think? Which is an option that people now... It certainly is. So, you know, I get my royalty statements for my backlist titles that I don't control the rights to twice a year. Amongst them are Factoring Humanity. No, excuse me, I got that one back. Flash Forward came out in 98, 22 years ago, Calculating God, 20 years ago. And I look at the dribs and drabs they make being sold by Tor, who still controls the rights, but does absolutely nothing to market them. They're not listed in their current catalog. A bookseller has to know to order the books. And then I look at the backlist that I control, like Factoring Humanity, an even older book, or Frame Shift, an even older book, and how much money those are making me in my own self-published editions. And I see that I never again want to sign a North American publishing contract. The difference between North American ones and the ones everywhere else in the world, including Great Britain, is North American ones are for as long as it is in print, we control the rights. Everywhere else has term limits. And even in North America, because, again, I went in and said, no, 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 don't even bother showing me your boilerplate. Here's how we're going to do it. Seven-year term limit to my Canadian publisher, seven-year term limit to my American publisher. Sell it for seven years, and at the end of seven years, if I like what you've been doing and the amount of money you've been making for me, then I will grant you an extension. Not, yeah, as long as it sells one copy every six months, you will hold on to the rights. I literally have marked in my, I have an electronic calendar, the year 2033, it's only 13 years away, when under the U.S. copyright law, there's a second kick at the can provision. After 35 years, any copyright holder can demand their intellectual property rights back based on the assumption 
that there was an unequal bargaining position at the beginning of your career with the person who made you sign one of these stupid in perpetuity copyright laws. Musicians use it all the time. Novelists who are aware of it use it. Uh, and so on in, in 2033, I will claw back flash forward if I can't get it any other way. And in 2035, calculating God. The sad truth is I'll be 75 effing years old when I get Calculating God back, a book that I published when I was 40. But at least in my dotage, it'll be generating real money for me again. It's a fascinating time for an author publishing because the options are so massive. And as you say, the print-on-demand options have really changed. I've been keeping a close eye on them. And it was, yeah, recently I received a book that I was, I was, I teach creative writing classes from time to time. And so uh, there's a particular poetry textbook from Oxford University Press that I use. Um, and recently I was sent another copy of it by Oxford University Press. And the second I got it, I just, it looked identical to the version I have, but just ineffably, I could tell there was something yes. raw, different, like the weight was different or something. I checked, and the new version is a POD release. So Oxford yes. University Press is now keeping their backlist on, like, Amazon's print-on-demand um, or Ingram Sparks, I forget which one. But um, it, it, if I didn't know the tell, yes. I would not have noticed the quality of the difference. Tor services most of its backlist as print-on-demand now as well. And they used to do appalling, awful bad photocopy looking, not just with that toner sheen, but looking like a photocopy of a photocopy. I once had uh, David Hartwell, I shoved a book in his hand, uh, which was a Tor print-on-demand edition of hybrids, and he says, what is this, a Chinese pirate edition? So that's your effing book, David. That's what you shipped to a bookstore in Calgary that I went to do a signing at, because that's the crap that this publisher that prides itself on being the biggest and best science fiction publisher in the history of the genre is willing to put their logo on the spine of. But now, the stuff is is really good. And, uh, you know, there are tells, most notably, if it goes to Amazon, there will be on the last interior page of the book a barcode that's Amazon's own barcode from their POD center. Um, but uh, other than that, most people cannot tell anymore. Even with a book, and I have one right here, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you saw my Facebook wall, that Amazon still wrecks books by cramming them into boxes. But this book here, it doesn't have a lot, but it has uh, pictures in it. And the halftone reproduction, there is one in here, is every bit as good as the halftone reproduction. Of course, it's making a liar out of me. In, um, in any commercially printed area. It's a book about Columbo. So there's, you know, Peter Falk is Columbo. There's there's a huge range of grayscale there. The pixels are tiny. It doesn't look like or feel like a photocopy. But there's that secret POD barcode at the back. It even says here, manufactured by Amazon.ca in Bolton, Ontario. Yeah, it's it's a curious time to be alive and have these options as a writer, which, of course, you know, whether with a small press or with POD, independently publishing and or some combination, I yeah. mean, you are missing out on that advance. But uh, which, you know, for some people is ridiculously high <laughs> for other people, you know, is a much more you know low thing and not necessarily what it used to be. Um, but it is very curious, you know, these options, and it's really interesting to see you do a, this kind of combination of things. Yeah, you know, I'm friends with Christine Catherine Rush and Dean yes, West. She's Smith. very uh, <laughs> stringent. Very, them. very famous writing couple. The difference they found when they decided to give up on New York publishing is that Chris owned most of her intellectual property. She had created original novels under several names in several genres. And Dean, who had written as many novels as Chris, owned almost none of his intellectual property because he'd written Star Trek or X-Files or other media tie-in properties. And so it turned out that after 20, 30, 40 years of being writers, 
Chris had an intellectual property portfolio that will make money for them till the day they die and their heirs for 70 years afterwards. And Dean had to start writing in his 50s like a demon to start creating works that he could exploit in his old age. So my only advice to the beginning writer is don't sign any contract that you can't get out of if you're not happy with, that gives anybody control of your rights on an open-ended basis, that lets something as ephemeral as an ebook or a print-on-demand edition count to satisfy the in-print clause. Make it say if you have to sign a contract with a traditional publisher, it must be a full print run produced on a traditional web offset press in quantity and specify the quantity if you can. Minimum 500 copies, minimum 5,000 copies, whatever you think you can get away with before it counts as being uh, reprinted. Because right now they say, oh, Rob's noticed, as I did last week, for instance, that one of my books is no longer available at Chapters Online or Amazon Canada or Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Oh, so he's doing, as his contract says, giving us six months to revert the rights or reprint. We better order up a copy so that we can hold it up in a Zoom meeting and say, your book's still in print, and continue to jerk him around. Hold on to your IP rights. Control, control, control. Well, thanks so much for talking to me. And could you tell people what the best way to keep in touch with you or learn more about the Open Hammer alternative is? Absolutely. This is the 25th anniversary of my website. I was the first Canadian author of any type to have a website, the first science fiction writer in the world to have a website devoted to his or her science fiction writing. And according to the Oxford Companion to Canadian Literature, I have the most elaborate and interesting of any website created by a Canadian author, which means that I got in early and so was able to snare a really terrific URL. It is sfwriter.com. S is in science, F as in fiction, writer.com. Uh, and that's my home base. There's over a million words of text there, which is the equivalent of about 10 novels worth. There's over 800 separate documents on every aspect of my work, on Canadian science fiction as a general topic, on the craft of writing, on futurism, all kinds of stuff there. And also in social media, my three main ones are Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon. My name, Robert J. Sawyer, drop the spaces, drop the period, squish it together as Robert J. Sawyer. That's where you'll find me. Thanks so much for talking to me, Robert. And uh, My absolute pleasure, Jonathan. Excellent. I had a ball! Ah! <laughs> Excellent. We'll keep writing the wrong way. Yeah,